Today's guest is Randy Schieffer. Randy is a former special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and he has a master's degree in forensic science. Randy has had three near-death experiences while in the hospital with COVID just last year, and today we will learn about those experiences. Randy, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, and welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, and I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share my story, to share my adventures with everyone. So thank you very much. Well, great. All right. If you don't mind, let's jump right into it. And I don't know if you want to give us any background with how you got COVID or you just want to start how you were in the hospital. Yeah. Um, it was actually a, a year ago, um, um, March 26th is when I went into the hospital. I have no clue how I caught COVID. Um, we were supposed to have gone to, the, as a family, we were supposed to have gone down to Disney World for that week. And of course, because of COVID, everything got closed. So everybody that was in the family was just hanging out here at the house. And uh, a couple of family members said they didn't feel good, but nothing, you know, out of the ordinary or unusual. And uh, at the week's end, everybody went home and I started to feel bad and uh, started to go downhill from there. So I figured it was the flu. So I went to my ex-family practice doctor. Um, and, uh, told him that I was sick and that, uh, I had lost my appetite. I wasn't feeling well. I was nauseous, et cetera. And he said, Oh, you have the flu, uh, go home and rest. And I said, you know, I don't think it doesn't feel like the flu. Can I get tested for this COVID? And at that time, you know, they had the four or five questions, you know, that they would ask everybody, have you traveled? You know, do you have a fever? You had a cough or whatever nonsense it was. So I couldn't get tested. That was on a Monday. And by Wednesday, I was so sick that I went back and um, I saw the family practice or the physician assistant uh, that time. And um, after listening to him about 20 minutes telling me how good of a physician assistant he was, he finally said, you've got the flu, um, go home and rest. Come back in a week if you don't feel better. Asked him the same thing, you know, oh, you know, I don't feel well. Could I get tested? No, no, no. There's no need to test you. So the very next day, the 26th of March, my daughter, Erin, uh, came over and just to check on me to see how I was doing. And she called my my uh, middle daughter or my youngest daughter, who's a nurse, Elisa. And um, she said, look, dad looks gray. Uh, he doesn't look good at all. And what should I do? So she said, well, get him down to the hospital immediately. And uh, I went down and they took one look at me and put me right in the isolation uh, ward down there. You know, it's uh, vacuum sealed, you know, so air and things can't get out. And they came in and, and my blood pressure was very low. My my pulse ox reading, the oxygen in my blood was down to 84 Um really short of breath, took some x-rays, had bilateral pneumonia in both my lungs, and uh, Im they immediately uh, admitted me uh, and in critical condition. And um, I went up in the ward. I think I spent 24 hours in a general ward before they moved me over to ICU. And uh, within 24 hours of that, um, they did an emergency intubation on me. I got intubated. Um, 
about 48 hours, I think, after the, uh, I was intubated, um, my they had out the ventilator as far as it could go. And uh, I was still, my oxygen levels were still very, very low. So they stuck me on a helicopter and uh, uh, medevaced me over to a larger hospital that's close by where I immediately went in and uh, they placed me on an echo, ECMO machine. It's like a uh, heart-lung bypass. They went in the right side of my neck, down my jugular into uh, the heart. And basically, this machine takes your blood out, oxygenates it, and puts it back in. So it gives your lungs an opportunity to rest because I was in acute respiratory failure. Uh, and it also gives your heart opportunity to rest. Um, and, of course, that, at that time, they put me into uh, the coma. And I was in a coma for about two and a half weeks, just shy of three weeks. I was in a coma. Um, so I was on ECMO, acute respiratory failure. Uh, my kidneys uh, failed, so I was in renal failure. I went on dialysis. Um, my liver enzymes started to get very high, and I, I had a couple of blood clots that they were a little concerned with. And um, come to find out, my family didn't even know this until I got my medical records. Uh, actually, my uh, left ventricle of my heart, my heart got enlarged and the left ventricle of my heart actually started to uh, malfunction somewhat. So they were, they were concerned I may go into a heart attack as well. So um, uh, my one daughter asked the doctors, they said, be honest with me, what is his chances? And he said, we give him about a 3% chance of survival. Um, so I was pretty much gone you know, at, at that point. And, um, and that's when my, my NDEs actually started to, uh, to occur. Um, and I have no idea of what random order these came in. Uh, and I definitely know, uh, what was a near death experience. I know what was a dream and I know my hallucinations from being under the drugs, you know, um, my loose, my hallucinations were kind of silly. One of them that I remember I'm laying there, and I'm, uh, of course, I'm unconscious. I'm out. I think I'm looking at the ceiling, but, you know, um, and I closed my eyes and I saw uh, bright red, white, and blue lightning bolts just flashing at me, you know. So they scared me. So I opened my eyes real quick and I said, you know, I think I'm dead. You know, I got to be dead. And I looked up at the ceiling and I saw six dancing panda bears on the ceiling. Uh, dancing to this god awful music that you know I heard, um, so that was definitely hallucination. I think that was probably the ketamine that I was on, you know. Um, and my dreams that I had all involved people that um, are still with us. Uh, I had a dream about my wife. I had a dream about all three of my girls uh, in different situations, you know, um, their husbands. So. My dreams all involve people that were are, are still here. My near-death experiences, um, I remember um, a big dark tunnel and that I found myself in this tunnel. And I was, I, the, I was moving through the tunnel, not real fast, but I was moving through the tunnel, down the tunnel. And on either side of the tunnel, there were small um, windows. Um, different, very small little windows. 
And I remember when I came out of um, the coma, trying to describe this to my daughter, I used, and not experiencing any of this before, and not being familiar with near-death experiences at that time, I told her, I said, I, it was almost like an airplane, you know, the hull of an airplane, the fuselage of an airplane. There was that, that type of a roundness to it. And I went through this tunnel, and they had these windows, and outside of the windows were very, very bright light, just a warm, glowing, bright light. But the light was not shining into the tunnel. You know, it didn't penetrate the tunnel. Um, the tunnel was very warm. I, I remember feeling very warm and very comfortable and very safe traveling through this tunnel. And at that time, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a conscious thought of, okay, I'm dead or, um, you know, where am I going to? And I was just traveling down this tunnel. And I, I came out, I exited into a room, into a, like a hall. And uh, it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous um, hall that I was in. Huge chandeliers. Um, the walls were all gold. The doors were, were encased in gold. Um, just absolutely. The, the floor was, was almost pearl-looking, white pearl-looking, the floor was. It was absolutely beautiful. And I remember some desks being around, and I felt the presence of others. Um, I knew there was other people in this room. I couldn't see them, but I knew that there were other people there. And I'm, I'm standing kind of above looking like I was on a, um, um, a riser almost looking down into this big long hall that I was at. And this spirit uh, came up to me and he was human um, from the waist up, I remember looking at his face and he had arms. And then from the waist down, it was like um, um, flowing, a flowing robe or flowing linen of some sort. And he kind of, he kind of, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? Not flew, but he kind of glided up in front of me. And I said to him, I said, what a absolutely stunning room. It's beautiful. And he goes, yes. And he said, this is one of our favorite rooms. And um, he talked about, you know, the gold and the, and the chandeliers a little bit. I don't know exactly what he said, but he was talking about the room. And he said, you have to go. And I said, well, what do you mean I have to go? He goes, you don't belong here. You have to leave. And he pointed over to a door. So I remember going over to this door, and it was this huge huge doors, big high door, all encased with all kind of uh, inlays and big wooden door outlined in gold and the handles were all gold colored. It's beautiful. And I opened the door and I walked out and I had about three or four steps I had to walk down before I could get into uh, like a sidewalk. And I walked down these three or four steps and I was in this magnificent city, absolutely gorgeous city very very clean meticulously clean and uh, again when i first woke up i had no reference of where i was so i described it to my daughters as i think i was in paris or i think i was in london you know because i felt that i was somewhere else um and i didn't have a reference at that point because um i was never brought up religiously as a as a kid um religion was never a big part of my life um 
you know, so I didn't have any references. Oh my goodness, this is the Hall of Records, or you know, this is the New Jerusalem of where I'm at. But it was a magnificent city, just absolutely beautiful. Uh, big, tall skyscrapers as far as, as far as you could see. Uh, glass encased in glass and gold. Again, the, all the streets were like a pearl white. Uh, as I walked down through the city, there were parks. And the green grass was just magnificent green, just as deep a green as you could ever imagine. And the flowers were just so beautiful. And, and uh, so I, I kept walking. And I remember um, getting lost in the city. And I couldn't find my way back to where I was, that to that hall. And uh, I started to get very scared and uh, um, that they couldn't find me. Nobody was able to find me. And I walked until I just got so tired, so exhausted that I, I remember collapsing in the, in the gutter, in the, in the gutter of this. And I was laying in this gutter and I felt, again, I felt the presence that there was other people near me, walking near me, walking past me. And I, I kept saying to myself, why aren't these people helping me? Why isn't something stopping and, and helping me? They see me laying here. Somebody needs to help. And I, I, um, you know, at that time, I just didn't know what to do. I was laying there scared, um, cold, remember being very, very cold. And I, I looked over to my left and I saw these, um, this long, magnificent white uh, staircase going up into the, in, into the sky, just as far as you could see. And the sky was just a magnificent blue. Um, just as the brightest of blues that you, you could ever imagine again. And there's, and this is what's hard about trying to explain what you saw because it's so magnificent. It's hard to come up with a reference, you know, to colors and things of what you saw. And I remember thinking to myself, I can, if I can crawl over to that staircase, um, someone will be able to see me. Maybe someone will see me. So I crawled over to the staircase and I started to, uh, crawl up uh the the stairs and um i remember i i'm calling crawling up and someone grabbed me by the back of the neck it was just like they grabbed me by the shirt collar and they said there he is there's randy get him and they grabbed me by my shirt collar and just whisked me off the steps i was gone just like that just like they just whisked right back um you know, I was in a coma still, but I was just off those steps and black, you know, back into a, a very black environment, you know. Um, so that was kind of my first one. And again, it was, you know, now that I've got educated, you know, I've only been here in this uh, NDE stuff for about a year. But, um, you know, talking to some people and reading some books, you know, I understand where I was and and what I saw at that time definitely was the hall of records, you know, uh, just a big, beautiful gold building. And then, you know, this new Jerusalem, the city was absolutely marvelous. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, the second NDE is, um, a little bit uh, like the first actually, cause I, I went back to that city. I was just in a different part of the city and I went through my tube again and, um, I exited this time. It was just in a different area uh, of the town. And um, 
Uh, I remember, again, walking around, trying to find my way back, trying to find this hall. I, I remembered being at the hall before, um, trying to get people's attention, but I couldn't see them. Um, and I remember yelling, help me, help me, someone help me. But I couldn't, they wouldn't get, they wouldn't stop and help me. I couldn't see them, but again, I felt their their presence. And um, I finally said to myself, well, I know where that staircase is. And if I can get back to that staircase, maybe somebody can find me again. So that's exactly what I did. I kept walking through this magnificent city and uh, until I came up to the staircase. Same thing, just this beautiful white staircase materialized and it just went up into the heavens. So I started to climb up the staircase. And uh, again, I heard somebody cry out, there he is, there's Randy, grab him. And it was just like somebody grabbed me by the back of the neck again and just took me right off of that staircase. And, uh, you know, that was, those two were very, very similar. Um, I just had an opportunity, I guess, to walk more of uh, New Jerusalem than, than most, you know. But I remember I was, I had legs, I had arms. I remember looking at all of those. Um, uh, as I said, the one gentleman that was inside the hall was kind of half human, half spirit, if you will, that came up to me. And um, that threw me off when I saw him because it was like, it, I, I didn't know how to take him, you know, because I, I didn't have any reference to what he was. wasn't scared because the whole environment was very, warm and 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 loving almost very relaxed uh feeling um i don't remember um really thinking at that time well i must be dead uh you know i must be dead and i must be somewhere um i did have those thoughts especially on the on my third one definitely had some ideas of um you know okay i'm dead i'm dead and, um, um, you know, where am I going to go and, and how, cause I actually attended my own viewing. Um, I'm still trying to, was it a dream? Was it, I think it was more of a dream, but I remember saying to myself, okay, then I'm dead. And I was laying in a casket, uh, in, uh, in my home up in Ohio. I live in Florida now. This is back up in Ohio. And I kept saying to myself, if this is my viewing, why did my family stick me in the basement for people to come look at me? But I remember vividly laying there and just accepting the fact that I was dead and, um, you know, that I was attending my own viewing. The other one I'm having that I'm trying to work out on being in the military, um, I remember um, being on looking at the inside of a helicopter. And I know they, they, medevac me from one hospital to another but i remember being on this helicopter and at my feet were two uh deceased soldiers i just felt that, that they were deceased i knew that they were deceased and that's what i thought too okay i'm dead and this helicopter took off and i just knew that we we're on our way to dover air force base uh to mortuary affairs where um, when individuals, uh, you know, are killed in combat, they come back to Dover Air Force Base 
to mortuary affairs and they get um, um, an autopsy and that's where they get prepared for shipment to their family for burial. So they get their uniform put on them and all of that. And I had been there before in real life. And um, I just knew that that's where I was going, you know. And I remember the helicopter landing. And I vividly remember hearing the marching of boots coming up to the back of the helicopter. And it said, we are the honor guard to remove uh, the soul of, and they said this individual's name and pulled him out of the helicopter. And I heard the, heard the boots, you know, kind of marching away. A few minutes later, they came back, did the same thing, removed the third person. So I'm lying there and um, wondering when it was going to be my turn. And this, I couldn't see her, but I felt the presence of someone and they were preparing me. They were putting on my uniform and my military dress and preparing me for burial because I was screaming at her at the time. I do not want to be buried. Please tell my family I do not want to be buried. And she said to me, she goes, I'll tell them, don't worry. She says, we'll mark it on the box uh, not to be buried, and they'll know not to bury you. And I was, I've always been petrified of death, absolutely petrified and scared of death, to the point where I would actually go into panic attacks, thinking about death and dying. I lost my father suddenly at a very early age, uh, and his death uh, really affected me um, that way. And um, I knew at that time when I lost him, you know, it's over. It, it's the end. We're not going to be able to play catch anymore. We're not going to be able to go fishing and deep sea fishing. Um, and I had a very close relationship with my father. So it was very traumatic on me when I did lose him. And um, so I was very, very scared of death. And I was yelling at this lady that I didn't want to be buried. Please tell my family. And she's reassuring me that she would. And I felt someone, again, a spirit of some sort, because I couldn't see them. I felt their presence rubbing my hand. They were rubbing my hand. And I heard a gentleman's voice. He was, he was at my, he was on my left-hand side, uh, right about by my knees, right in that area. because I could just feel him. And he had such a beautiful, beautiful voice. And he said to me, he said, I've given you two shots. You tell me when you're ready for the third. And that's one that I'm struggling with. Was it God talking to me? Um, My two shots would have been acute respiratory failure and my renal failure. Um, You know, was he going to take my heart? Was that the third heart or that the third shot that would, you know, take my life? So I'm still struggling with that one to, to try to figure out you know, was it God? Was he giving me a chance? Because this, I remember this, this female voice uh, finally said, she was rubbing my arm, my fingers, and she finally said, he's alive. He's alive. And it was just like that. I was gone. I was out of that situation just that, that quick. Um, so that's one story that I'm, I don't know where I'm at on, you know, that I'm trying to stu- struggle with. Was it an NDE? Was it a dream? Hallucination? Where does that one actually fit? So that one was a little, little strange. But um, my third one, um, I really, um, I just love this one. Uh, this is my favorite MDE if you can have 
uh, a favorite NDE. This this is this is the one I love the most, and I love talking about the most. Um, I remember being in um, a, a very big um, field. It, was, it felt like an open field. It was dark, but it wasn't pitch black dark. Uh, the blackness kind of kind of glowed, if you will, you know. And I'm standing there, and this spirit comes up to me. And telepathically, I knew I was supposed to follow them. Um, so we started walking and gliding, I should say. It wasn't really a walk. It was kind of a, a glide through this field that we were doing. And we we're getting a little bit deeper into this field. And if you, if you, and I'm, I'm sure you have, you've been at the um, theater and, every, and the stage is dark and all of a sudden they hit the spotlight and the spotlight comes on an actor standing there. It was just like that. And to my left, all of a sudden this bright light comes on and there sits my deceased mother-in-law. Um, and I'm, I saw her as clear as day as I'm sitting here looking at my wife across the table from me, you know. Just that clear, just that perfect that I saw her. She was in a younger form, uh, I would say maybe 30-ish, you know, um, dressed in white, all dressed in these long white robes. Hair, she had very long hair. She had her hair pulled up and she had a white ribbon around her hair. And she was sitting at a bar. At least right now I'm describing it like a bar. She was sitting at this bar. And she had one hand on the on the bar top, and she was sitting there very regally, very straight, you know, very, you know, properly, you know, just. And then she looked over at me momentarily, and then looked away. And she wouldn't acknowledge me. She wouldn't say anything to me. She just looked away and stared off uh, into into space. And um, the the back of the area lit up. And my deceased brother-in-law, uh, who was um, yeah, a little bit of a character, you know, in real life, um, in younger form again, I would say he was in his teens, because uh, I think he was in his 30s when he passed, and he was in his younger teens, and he comes running down behind the bar, knocking the bottles off the back of the bar. And I said, well, yeah, that's, that's Mark, you know, he, that's, that's what he does, you know, he's a character. And he passed his mother, and he just kept going. He just kind of went out of sight, ran out of sight. But his mother was still sitting there under this bright light. And then all of a sudden, that light went off. And my spirit, my guide, started to take me deeper into this area. And way off in a distance, this little dim light started to come on and get brighter and brighter. And I'm looking and I'm, and I'm squinting. I'm trying to figure out who these three images were that I saw. And it, and it was started to get a little bit closer. And I realized that it was my father and my mother and my sister standing there. And my mother and my sister were looking at me. My dad had his back to me and he looked momentarily and then turned away. And then at, when he turned away, my mother and my sister turned away. And again, they wouldn't acknowledge me. And 
I remember saying, well, why aren't they talking to me? Why aren't they talking to me? And I felt that there was a barrier between me and them, some type of an invisible barrier. And I couldn't, I wouldn't be allowed to pass through that barrier. As we walked through deeper, I'm, I'm have to make the assumption that the, the barrier was moving with us, but I couldn't pass through. It was like that, the veil, the veil of death that I just wasn't allowed to, to pass through. So um, as we were standing there and this light kind of got dimmer and dimmer uh, on my, on my uh, parents, the spirit comes out of my, uh, on my right hand side, um, man in about his thirties. I didn't know him. Um, I didn't recognize him. Uh, kind of uh, dark hair, not real long, but dark hair. Um, human from the waist up. Um, again, his, the bottom half of him were these long flowing robes or gowns. And he comes up and he stops kind of right in front of me. And he says, tell Madison at the salon, her grandfather is okay. And he, he, he glided off to my left-hand side. And telepathically, I knew he was a veteran. I felt it. I'm a veteran. I did 20 years in the Air Force. And I just felt that he was a veteran. And he, he got up onto a white porch. And he sat down on this white porch with another figure. And the, the other figure was, wasn't really a human form. It was some type of an orb or some type of an energy sitting there, but it didn't have a, any human uh, characteristics to it. And um, he started making red, white, and blue ribbons and red, white, and blue American flags. And I knew that, um, you know, that, that there was some significance to that. And, um, um, telepathically my guides communicated that I had to leave and I left that environment altogether. So when I came around, when I came to in the hospital, uh, my, my youngest daughter, who's the nurse, the hospital finally allowed her to come in. Cause if you remember the early days of COVID, they would not let family members in to see you. So when I went into the hospital on 26th of March, I didn't see any of my family members until Lisa was there at the beginning the of the, um, yeah, until the last week I was there, which would have been the end of April, beginning of, of May. And um, they finally allowed her to come in. And once she came into my room, she wasn't allowed to leave. So she stayed with me. And um, I immediately told her um, my, my NDEs, my dreams. And, and I told her this Madison story. And uh, she said to me, she said, Dad, do you know a Madison? I said, I don't know a Madison. I don't know. But I said, I feel I have a responsibility to try to find her somehow and communicate this message from her grandfather. And I said, so I don't know how we're going to do it, but somehow I've got to get this communicated to her. So um, I was finally released from the hospital. And um, I had to learn to walk again, and I had to um, learn to eat and swallow again. And um, I came out of my bedroom on my walker, and I had a, a business card that I had picked up at a local barber shop because I don't use the word salon. Salon's just not in my vocabulary, you know. 
And um, I asked my daughter, I said, could you call these people and see what they're doing for haircuts during COVID? You know, we can get an appointment. So she came back a few minutes later and she goes, I made you an appointment. I said, she said, where did you get this card? And I said, oh, I've had it in my my closet. It's been back there for months, you know. And uh, she goes, have you looked at this card? And I said, not really, not until I just handed it to you. Why? And she goes, Dad, I think we found your Madison. And I said, you know, what are you talking about? So he hands me the card. She goes, flip it over. And I flipped it over. And there on the front of the card was Madison Logan on the card. And uh, so I told my daughter, I said, call back and, and get an appointment with Madison. So she did that. And uh, she went down with me because I obviously couldn't drive. So she went down to the appointment with me. And um, Madison's cutting my hair. And when I came home, my wife said to me, she says, you mean you told that poor girl this story while she was cutting your hair in front of everybody? And I said, yeah, probably not the best thing to do. But yeah, I, I did do that. So I asked her, I said, Madison, do you mind if I ask you some questions? Because when I came home and I had these feelings, it was like, where was I? Were they dreams? What were they? Um, and I had to have some type of validation. I wanted to validate all of these somehow, you know, to, for my own sake. Were they real? Because, and um, um, so when we found Madison, I said, you know, I've got to go ask it. So I said, you mind if I ask you some personal questions? And she said, no, not at all. <clears throat> so I said, Madison, are both your grandfathers still um, alive? And she goes, no. She said, um, my one grandfather, who I was kind of close with, closest with, um, passed, to, passed away next month, which would have been June of 2020 she goes he passed away and this coming june will be a year so he passed away in 2019 and i said oh you know how did she he, he die she goes well i'm not real sure but i know it was real sudden it was a real sudden d- death and um i then said oh i said where does he live and she goes oh she says um he's in iowa my grandfather my grandmother all live up in iowa my whole family lives in iowa she said, uh, I'm down in Florida um, with my fiance, now husband, who is a doctor here of physical therapy locally. And um, she goes, that's the only you know, reason we moved down here is for his job. She goes, but, but I'm, you know, right, went to college and everything in Iowa. So um, I said, was he a veteran? And she goes, oh, yeah, he was a veteran. Um, he belonged to the American Legion and was very active, you know, as a veteran. So I felt enough then that I told Madison, I said, Madison, I think, and my daughter had told Madison what I'd been through, you know, 3% chance of survival and all. And um, um, I said, Madison, I think your grandfather came to me uh, and he gave me a message. And I said, he told, he, this is exactly what he said, Madison. I said, he said, tell Madison at the salon, her grandfather is okay. <clears throat> so Madison's crying. I'm crying. My daughter's crying. People in the salon were looking at us like we were nuts, you know. And uh, I said, Madison, I said, he came by me and then he moved up into a white porch. 
I said, is that white porch significant? And she says, that would have been the white porch at his house. She said, in, in Iowa, um, he would always go sit on the white porch, especially after his retirement. He would sit at the white porch and kind of talk to people as they come by and just like to watch, you know, traffic. And I said, Madison, I said, he and this other thing that was he was sitting next to was making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. Is that significant? And Jeff, she, she took a step back away from the chair. And, and you know, she's wearing a mask. And I, her eyes got as big as saucers. And she said, he belonged to the American Legion. And every Veterans Day, she said, the family went down to American, American Legion with him. And we made red, white, and blue ribbons and flags for all the veterans' graves. I, I was just lost for words, you know. To me, it, my whole journey had just been validated of what I saw, where I've been, what I encountered. And um, Madison and I have become pretty good friends now, obviously. And um, like next time that I uh, next time that I saw her, um, she told she told me that she told her grandmother about what had happened. And, and I'd like to relay a story because I've talked to her grandmother now uh, two or three times. And uh, she's just the sweetest lady, love her to death. And um, uh, matter of fact, I just talked to her this afternoon. And uh, I asked Kathy, I said, Kathy, um, Madison tells me that uh, this is the second time that her significant other um, had sent back a message to you. And she goes, yeah, that's right. And I said, what was the first time? What happened during that first uh, uh, contact? And she said, well, right after he died, she found a, she knew he had an insurance uh, uh, policy and she found the business card and she called um, the number on the business card and the gentleman answered the phone and she said, you know, I'm looking for a particular individual. And he goes, you know, you, ma'am, you got the wrong number. He goes, I'm not this insurance company. I'm not, I'm not that person. And she goes, Oh, I'm really sorry. You know, um, uh, you know, my husband's, husband just passed away and, um, I'm trying to run down his insurance policy. And he goes, I'm just curious. He says, where are you calling from? And she goes, Oh, I'm calling from Iowa. And the man says, Oh, he goes, cause you know, you're calling California. I live in California. And she, and he goes, um, I don't know anybody in I, and he kind of stopped. And he says, can I tell you a story? And she goes, sure. And he goes, I was in a very bad motorcycle accident. And, um, he said it was about six months ago. And he goes, he said, when they, when the paramedics picked me up off the street, he goes, I was dead. And they were able to resuscitate me in the hospital. And he goes, when I was dead, he says, I kept hearing a voice saying, and he says, was your husband named John? And she goes, yes. And um, he says, tell Kathy that her husband is okay. Very similar to what he told me about Madison. Tell Kathy her husband is okay. And I just, and that, this, this little guy is determined. 
You know, this little ghost is determined. He wants to get that message back to his family that uh, that he is okay. You know, and after talking to to uh, Kathy, I think I understand why. Um, he like my father. He died very very suddenly, and um, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to my father either because we were actually on a family vacation when he died of of his heart attack, and John died of a heart attack. And Kathy and John didn't set, get a chance to say goodbye to each other either because Kathy had an errand to run and she left the house, forgot something, came back for it and yelled back, John, I'm leaving again. And he goes, okay, see you later. And that was the last he got to say to her. And uh, she left and she said not 15, 20 minutes later, uh, her other granddaughter called and said John had collapsed onto the floor. And can't she can't get him up? So by the time we, uh, uh, she got back to the uh, the house, he had already he was already dead. So I think he loved her so much he just didn't get a chance to say goodbye. And this is his way um, of being so determined uh, he was going to get a, a message back to her somehow. And uh, you know I was his messenger. Um, you know I you know to through Madison. To her, to her grandmother. I was definitely his messenger. And um, I feel that, uh, you know, I didn't go as deep as some. I didn't have a lot of the experiences other people have experienced because I think I was there as an observer. Um, I think I surprised them by, by being in the city. Um, I'm like that guest, the uninvited guest at dinner that all of a sudden shows up at the front door and you're like, Oh, what is he doing here? And what are we going to do with him? You know, and I think that was me. So they allowed me to observe uh, certain things, you know, in heaven and life after death. And um, then sent me back to be the messenger to to let people know that uh, there is hope and there is a life after we after we do die. And um, uh, and it's very loving and you can transition into different shapes and forms and ages, uh, things of that nature, you know? So I know I, I have been very blessed. Um, the only reason I survived, um, ECMO extended my life. Um, but I survived because of convalescent plasma. And that is, uh, um, when somebody gets sick with COVID, your body develops or any disease, really your body develops antibodies uh, to fight that disease. And I was so sick, my system just couldn't develop adequate and strong enough antibodies. So they can take the plasma out of, out of somebody that has COVID and has recovered, take the plasma and then give it to the sick person. And you've got strong antibodies to help that sick person fight uh, the disease. And my family, God bless my family, uh, Aaron, Kate, Lisa, my wife, Donna, um, they were my cheering squad. Um, each, each child took a role and, um, Aaron and my wife were in charge of the praying trees. You know, they, they got the praying going and that certainly helped because I think all of our prayers were answered. Um, Kate and Lisa worked on getting the internet running and getting up because 
my hospital um, was a little bit reluctant to give me the convalescent plasma because I was the first person in Northwest Florida to receive convalescent plasma. And I was the 34th person in the nation to receive it. Uh, so it was fairly new and they didn't know how it was going to react. Uh, and if it was, you know, um, and, and, and I'm sure there, they felt that there was some liability there in giving it to me, but my family had to figure out uh, how to get the plasma. Um, they worked with our local blood bank, one blood to uh, who had never taken convalescent plasma before who reached out and got people trained. Um, and they, they uh, found a volunteer um, through Facebook. They sent out a Facebook posting looking for a volunteer who had been sick, who had had the plasma. And it went to like 70,000 people uh, who viewed that request. And there was one young man in uh, Pensacola, Florida, right outside of where we live, who uh, stepped up and um, uh, volunteered and donated his plasma. And um, uh, again, once my family got the plasma, um, the hospital was very reluctant to give it to me. And uh, it took, again, Aaron, Kate, and Lisa to sit down and have meetings with the hospital administrators. Um, and they finally agreed to give it to me. And ironically, they gave it to me last Good Friday. I received convalescent plasma on Good Friday. And by Easter morning, they capped the ECMO. In other words, they were able to turn the ECMO off uh, by Easter morning. My, my kidneys started to function again. I came off dialysis. By that Monday, um, they were able to start me weaning, weaning me off of the, the ventilator. Um, my liver enzymes returned to normal, and all my heart returned to normal as well. Um, and uh, all the tests that I've had after I've gotten out of the hospital, um, I have no scarring on my lungs whatsoever. Uh, they've done x-rays and respiratory tests and things. I have 98% use of my lungs. My heart is perfect. I've had nuclear tests and stress tests and everything else they wanted to throw at me, and my heart is normal, perfect, no no evidence of any damage done. And it's the same thing with my liver and kidneys, absolutely no no evidence of any damage whatsoever. I do have still have some lingering effects from it. Um I have my good days and bad days, and I have what I call my COVID days, where um, I get a real bad brain fog, and it's hard for me to concentrate, and um, I develop a stutter uh, thanks to COVID, and I stutter and, and have this brain fog, and um, I was because I was restrained when I was in the coma, um, and they eventually gave me paralyzing drugs because I was pulling so hard on the restraints. I actually tore a ligament in my wrist and that had to get repaired. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm here and I'm upright and uh, the good Lord, you know, saw fit to, uh, to bless me and my family and, and put me back on this earth, I think, is to, to pass along his message um, because I don't fear death any longer. Mm. I do not fear it at all. You and I would not be having this conversation last year at this time. Trust me. You know, it was just something that I could not talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would go into panic attacks and scream and yell and flail my arms and stomp my feet. You know, they were that bad. And um, uh, now I don't fear. 
That's great. Yeah. You know, you gave such a great description of your experience. It's hard for me to ask questions because <laughs> you gave me everything. <laughs> well, you know, you, 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 you go back to it, you know, mm -hmm. um, when you're sitting here talking about it, it's almost like you're reliving it. You know, mm -hmm. it's so fresh and I've got to remind myself to look at you occasionally because I look the opposite way and, and I'm just visualizing exactly you know, where I'm at and what I'm seeing and what I'm doing. And it's almost like you go back there mentally yeah. um, because I, I do believe it's your consciousness that, that travels on, you know, mm -hmm. consciousness is energy. And I think that that carries on with us and that that's what lives and goes forward. All know? right. Well, let me ask you, I have some few things I'm curious about, see what I can okay. come up with um, here. When you went to what you described as the hall of records, Mm -hmm. And a being approached you and I believe communicated with you and he was kind of this half human, half apparition. Do you have any sense of who that being was? I did not know him. Um, he had um, he had dark hair. Um, and I can't I someone has asked me, did he have a beard or something? And I, it's hard. I can't remember that. Uh, if he had a beard, but I remember he had probably about the length of your hair uh, and it being dark. And uh, he was probably a man in his eh, mid to late thirties, mm -hmm. maybe early forties okay. um, that approached me at that time. But no, I didn't have a feeling cause I didn't have a reference. Right. You know, again, I didn't have that reference of who or even where I was. I never even heard of the hall of records, you know, until I started to, uh, educate myself on, you know, where I was and what I saw. Would you feel like this being was ghostly like, and I mean, kind of translucence, um, transparent, translucent, lightish, or would you say it was more solid? That's a good question. I haven't been asked that one. Um, no, he, he was, he was, Ghost, you know, now you say that he was ghost like. He was, it wasn't, I tell you what, when looking at him, I didn't see him, his facial features, as clear as what I saw my mother in law. And he was pretty close to me. I remember him, him getting pretty close up. And he was kind of, yeah, it's a good description of him, I guess, because I haven't really thought about if he was a solid or if I could see through him, but he was, he was. Now that I think about it, kind of a ghostly looking guy. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah. You I have to, I have to, that's a good question. I'll have to put some thought on that. Now you're calling it the Hall of Records. Did you mm -hmm. see any reference to books or something that looked record like, like somewhere, you know, like a library or anything? Yeah. I did not see books. I didn't see any books. I remember seeing a lot of tables. And that I could feel that there was commotion going on, you know, and people were down in that area. I felt that there was some type of a commotion going on and there was a lot of people down milling around and, and things. But I don't because I wasn't dead, you know, physically dead, just my consciousness um, transpired into this area. You know, I, and that's where I think where I was just an observer. I wasn't allowed maybe to see that. You know, mm -hmm. they let me see the hall and 
and what it looked like, but I wasn't allowed to see the people there. Because okay. other than my, other than that gentleman that approached me and told me I couldn't be there, and then seeing my in-laws and seeing John, um, those are, I knew there were other people around, but those are the only spirits that I actually saw, mm-hmm. you know? And because I felt my other ones, I felt my guide. There was somebody there right. telling me to follow them in. And I never really saw them. Did but you I, have, I knew that they were there. So you just said you never saw your guide though, right? I never saw my guide. I just felt his presence. Obviously it had to be, I would think, it's like a telepathic communication. You would know his thoughts or would you hear his voice? No, I knew his thoughts. Yes. I knew he was saying, follow me. Mm. I just knew instantly that I was supposed to follow this person. Uh, and I trusted him. I felt complete trust. I was absolutely relaxed. I was calm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't fearful in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just accepted, okay, I must be dead. And, you know, I'm progressing in to wherever I'm going, wherever they're going to take me. Mm-hmm. You, know? you reference him as a him. What, what makes you what makes you think it was ma- he was male um just again the telepath i just felt it i just felt that it was some type of a man mm-hmm. presence i will say when i was in the hall of records um i felt and i i think i refer- referenced it when i first woke up as my wife that my wife was with me um because i didn't have any other reference you know to talk about because I felt that there was some female next to me. Couldn't see them, but I felt that there was some type of a female uh, person standing next to me there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they left. When I left, I walked out that door by myself. Mm-hmm. There was nobody with me when I walked out that door. Mm-hmm. But they stayed behind. I think it's fairly common that when I talk to NDE experiencers that they go to the Hall of Records can you remember anything else of what the room looked like? When I was standing up um, on that, like a, the, the first floor, if you will, because I was looking over a railing and looking down, um, there was a, this first floor extended, uh, as long as I could see it, extended back. And looking down through the hall, um, there were periodic archways probably saw maybe three or four on both sides mm-hmm. uh, archways that i and i couldn't tell if they led into you know side rooms or what but they looked to be open and there was just and it was really bright it was bright light very bright warm light from these huge chandeliers gold and crystal chandeliers that were on top and um or on the roof and the uh, arches were outlined in gold Remember the arches and the tables were um, looked like a very rich wood of some sort, you know, to me, like they were very um, well crafted, you know, tables that were there. Hmm. Um, and, and, and again, I could, I'm trying to story why I couldn't see anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt them, I felt the presence, but other than that one gentleman that walked up, I really couldn't see. It, oh, the hall almost looked empty to me, mm. but I knew that there was people there. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. 
it makes me think a lot of things because I feel like, you know, when you go to these other realms, you're going to like other universes or the multiverse theory, you know, just other dimensions and depending mm-hmm. on where you fit in within that dimension. And it's kind of like you were there, but not completely there almost. Yeah. Like I, like I said, I, just, I was able to observe. Yeah. You know, I really couldn't see mm-hmm. other spirits. I was just allowed to observe, you know, the hall of records, you know, the city of God, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, and, and then my in-laws and mm-hmm. of course blessed to have the, mm-hmm. you know, the John came up to me and, and sent his message back. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's why I was there, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. John wanted to get uh, this message back to, to Kathy and Madison and their family that he was okay. And you know, maybe that was the sole purpose for me being there. Have you considered looking at skylines on the internet since you've been back and seeing if you could reference that city? Well, my, my wife has asked me, she says, and we both traveled, you know, being in the military, we've been to Paris, we've been to London, we, we've been to Beijing and, and uh, we've been around the world. And, she said, okay, well, did you see the Eiffel Tower? Nope, didn't see the Eiffel Tower. Didn't see Big Ben, you know. Um, didn't see uh, uh, Telemann Square or, uh, you know, any of the famous things in, in, in Beijing, you know, mm-hmm. around China. Um, so, no, I, I, I haven't. Because it was, it was like nothing that you could see. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I was up top looking down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just remember walking through in these gigantic skyscrapers. Uh, you know, that I was walking down at different heights and different, um, uh, Very clean. yeah, depth to them, you know, and it was just immaculately clean, just beautifully clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what struck me the most of how, and there was no cars, no buses, no noise. Mm-hmm. It was very quiet. Um, and as I walked through, uh, and again, I felt spirits, I felt their presence, but couldn't see them. Why do you call the city either the city of God or New Jerusalem? Well, that's just from what my reading. I was trying to figure out, okay, what did I see? Where was I? What could I, you know, what could I have uh, envisioned? And uh, I just got done reading John Burke's uh, Imagine Heaven. And he describes a couple of the people that, that he has interviewed, described pretty much exactly what I saw, this huge city of, mm-hmm. of gold. And um, I'm using that term because that's what he referenced oh. it as, you know. Have you considered that that stairway was possibly, if you go up the stairs, you're not coming back? Coming back. Yeah, that's I think it was the came. stairway to heaven, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think once I got up there, you know, and I think that's why my family didn't acknowledge me because they didn't want me to pass through. Mm-hmm. They didn't want me to come forward. You know, oh. I wasn't allowed to. And that's why they just kind of turned their back and didn't acknowledge me, you know, because that's why they didn't speak to me. Um, My wife and I went down to Southern Florida uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, visited my mother's and sister's grave. And uh, I had a long lecture with her. I traveled all the way to heaven to see her and she turned her back on me and didn't come talk to me. (laughs) I traveled all that distance to see her. And she didn't even say hello. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I had a few choice words with her, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, in one way, I I feel that you're spiritually transformed because you no longer fear death. Do you think you've been spiritually transformed in any other ways? 
Um, I have a big desire. You ask my wife, I am not a reader. You know, I don't like to read. Um, and I have a big desire for knowledge. I have a big desire to try to find out where I was, what I saw. Um, and yeah, I think I was transformed, um, faith wise growing up and you can get on there and probably Kate and I don't know who else is on there, but you can ask them. We didn't discuss religion at home. Mm-hmm. You know, they went to, the girls went to Catholic school. My wife and I went to Catholic church sporadically just to show her, to show my face anyway, you know, as, as the family supporting the Catholic church, if you will. Uh, my, my wife was Catholic. I initially was Lutheran. And when we, uh, when we wanted the girls to get into Catholic church, I converted to the solicitor. So, but I never read the Bible, um, you know, never went to, um, you know, any of the Bible studies or, you know, I showed up on Sunday and that was it. And, uh, you know, we became the Christmas and Easter group, you know, that attended mass. Um, but now I have such an interest that, hmm. you know, um, I read. And when somebody, in, when, when I'm reading a book, you'll reference something in the Bible. I immediately go back and look it up and see what it says and, you know, how it does relate, um, you know, to what they're talking about. So I have a very thirst in this last year, I think I've read about four or five books already, and I'm not a fast reader. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, so it takes me some time. But for me, four to five books is good. <laughs> One, do you feel like this was a religious experience or a spiritual? And two, while we're at it, do you feel like that you referenced God anywhere in your experience or Jesus? When you say referenced, you mean well, maybe that, like actually, yeah, reference is probably not the right word. Maybe experienced or encountered or saw. Well, that one incident where he said, "I've given you two, Somebody said to me, mm-hmm. "I've given you two shots. You tell me when you're ready for the third." Mm. Um, you know who was that? My girls think it was God. Um, you know that was talking to me and giving me the decision. That if I want to go, he would give me that third shot. In other words, he would take my heart, stop my heart, and then I would move on. But that decision was clearly mine, you know. And uh, obviously, I didn't tell him to give me the third shot. Um, uh, you know, so was it God? I don't know. You know, but somebody talked to me in that in that sense. Um, I felt, I think, God's presence through the light through that warm, glowing light that uh, encapsulated the tunnel, you know, that I could look out that window in that tunnel and see this bright light. And it wasn't like looking up at the sun where it was so bright that, you know, you couldn't look at it. You could look at this very easily. It was just a magnificent, warm, loving feeling that I had going through this tunnel. So I think I experienced his love um, to that point. But because I wasn't... I wasn't supposed to be there. Um, I think he sent others to deal with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, was there other times in your life where you almost died before or did something, and you know you've got chances, and you know this is like okay, this is your last chance or something? No, I have never been sick at all. 
Um, well, it doesn't have to be referencing. To the sick, point, you know, yeah, I mean, anything. the point where I had that. Um, that's a good question because I was trying to think back. I almost, uh, not nearly drowned, but I, I was submerged underwater for a while. And I remember my dad coming, pulling me out from the swimming pool. And I'm trying to think back, but that was what, really when I was young. So it's hard to remember that exact experience of, of what went on there. Um, but spiritually, um, I don't recall anything happening. Mm. Um, you know, and, and being in OSI, um, you know, I've experienced, a, you know, the, the worst of humanity and saw the worst of humanity. And I certainly saw the best of humanity as well. Because it was, I was in the criminal investigation side, and uh, responsible for uh, processing a lot of crime scenes, murders, rapes, suicides, um, aggravated assaults. So I've seen the worst, and I've seen the best. And um, um, you know, I'm just, I don't know if there is, uh, you know, some people have 25 years or more to try to figure this out and how it references their their life. And I'm trying to do it this this last year. Um, but it's something that I think about every day. And um, for a lot of times I came out of I came out of um, um, ICU with ICU, ICU delirium and some PTSD. So I'm still getting some 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 counseling for that for that area. And it's something that my counselor and I talk about a lot, you know, because I when I first came out, I was struggling with why me? You know, I haven't done anything in my life to warrant such a blessing, you know, and, um, you know, I'm not the real religious person that has dedicated his whole life to, to Jesus. Um, you know, I'm not that person. Uh, you know, I'm not some person that went out and did something remarkable. And my wife tells me that uh, how many people that were praying on my behalf. And it just absolutely, I get overwhelmed by it, you know, that there were so many people that were praying, uh, you know, for, for me to survive. All and all over the world, they had them because we have friends all over the world. And, you know, we touched that she touched base with all of them as well. And everybody started, you know, prayer chains and mm -hmm. things at their different churches. And, um, you know, somehow it's just blessed. Mm. I mean, just absolutely blessed. Uh, to survive and and you know i still feel it was an honor uh to bring that message back to you know madison's family have you combed back through this experience wearing your investigator hat um not entirely yet um but i well that was part of the validation um because i looked at that and i said okay um i need evidence you know, what's the evidence that this was more than a dream? And why did I come back with this information that I knew nothing about? You know, didn't know Madison, didn't know Vicki, didn't know John, didn't know anybody in Iowa, you know. And um, it was, it, it bugged me. Why? You know, and that's why I wanted that validation so bad when I did find Madison and I structured my questions to her in such a way that um, as I asked each question, you know, I got a little bit better validation um, that what I encountered wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't a dream um, that I was there. Yeah. You know? 
And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I've got to look at the other things, the other incidents that I'm not sure about and kind of get those analyzed and work those out through my head as well to figure out what their meaning is. Right. Since your um, experience, are you having any feeling of wanting to go back or longing to go back? No, I feel like there is more for me to do here. Um, would I go back? Sure. I have nothing to fear now. Mm-hmm. You know, I know what I'm going to experience. I've been there. Right. Um, I have no fear of going back, but I feel like God gave me an opportunity to come back mm-hmm. because he has some more for me to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of a messenger, you know, mm-hmm. to get the word out um, to the ordinary man, because that's what I consider myself. You know, um, I'm just an ordinary guy out here that uh, isn't real strong in, in faith, wasn't real strong in faith and um, wasn't strong spiritually. And, um, you know, um, it's taken me the better part of the year to heal. Um, but now I'm starting to feel, you know, better. I'm getting more better days than bad days. Mm-hmm. And, um, so now it's my time to get out. And I think through yourself and others, I've been able to start to get my the message out, uh, this way. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, my daughter is arranging for me to talk to, uh, her pastor at the church, who's a very progressive guy, and he wants to talk to me about my experiences as well. And hopefully we can work something out that I can get, you know, working with the church. Um, I also would like to work with a hospice, volunteer at a hospice to um, help people and help their families uh, and and maybe, you know, give their family a little bit of uh, relief, a sense that it's going to be okay. He's going to a good place. And, um, you know, by describing what I encountered and what I saw and, uh, you know, helping, helping the people there dealing with death, um, as well. So, I mean that after hearing you say that, just that is an amazing transformation from being terrified of death to wanting to go all the way to almost the other extreme to go work at a hospice. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I specialized in death as an investigator. Um, you know, that's that death investigations was one of my specialties. And, um, when I retired, I became a consultant and, uh, I consulted with a lot of police departments on, um, homicides, um, where they needed a forensic investigator to come and look at the evidence and, you know, kind of determine based on the evidence, what happened. Um, you know, I have attended more autopsies than, you know, I could count. And uh, so I've seen death um, from all different type of angles, you know. And um, so I've always had, and this started with my father. Uh, he instilled, when he died, for some reason, I've, I, I, I started to get interested in death. And though I was scared of it, you know, it fascinated me. Um, and when I went to uh, autopsies and, or a crime scene and, and dealing with, you know, whatever, blood and whatever I was dealing with, um, I never felt panicked or scared, mm. you know. 
that I think I could take my emotions and put them in that box and become that investigator and just look at it from the investigator eyes and I didn't have to deal with my emotions, you know, from it. And it's only since uh, my wife encouraged me because um, I left the Air Force with some PTSD, and I think it was because of all of this as well. Um, she started encouraging me to, you know, that my father's death had such a traumatic experience or traumatic um, experience, I guess, to me, that I've never really dealt with it. And I harbor a lot of uh, feelings, you know, with it that way. And those are just starting to come out, you know, through my near-death experiences. I realize, you know, now that, yeah, I I harbored a lot of, uh, of my emotions when it came to, uh, to, to came to death, you know. Right. And so, yeah, it's a transformation for me there as well. Right. You know. Well, I guess we all kind of harbor emotions about something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It sounds like to me, from what you're saying, your family appears to be very supportive of you on this. Oh, 100%. Which is great. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting at this table if it wasn't for them. Oh, that's um, awesome. They, all three of my girls, you know, just fought tooth and nail. Um, you know, when the hospital said no, they didn't take no for an answer. Um, and uh, they kept pounding the hospital that they wanted this done. And when the hospital said, well, you figure it out, they figured it out. And, um, you know, I had such a tremendous support from them. Um, I did the easy part. I did is lay in a bed and, you know, travel around a bit. You know, they're out here working hard to get me what I needed to survive. And, you know, God bless all of them because I wouldn't be sitting here without them. You know, they're a wonderful group of people. Yes. I don't know what my wife and I did right, but by God, we did something right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm well, blessed. Before we wrap it up, because unfortunately I'm running out of time, is there one last message that you can share with everybody? That's a good one. I haven't thought that one asked, asked that one either. Um, death is nothing to be afraid of, I mean, or, or, or scared of. Um, there's no reason to be afraid of it. Uh, it's a very peaceful, easy transition. Um, you know, I can remember watching my sister die, literally standing at her bedside. She died of cancer and um, being by her bedside as she passed. And it was very peaceful. Uh, and I remember saying to myself that she went very, very peacefully. And now I understand, you know, what probably she was encountering because it is very loving and very welcoming uh, in. And uh, so that would be my message. Don't fear death. You know, it's such a lovely experience that, uh, um, you know, you're not going to be scared when the time comes and you're going to see your relatives again. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my mother-in-law and I never got along and she was the first person I saw up there, you know? Uh -huh. So <laughs> it was funny when you were mentioning that because, you know, all the mother-in-law jokes just started flashing through my yeah. mind. Uh oh, is this a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> well, if I, if I, if I, we have a pool cleaner and uh, every time I go outside around the pool, the little tail of the pool cleaner comes up and squirts me, you know, and I, I, I've named her Dolores after my mother-in-law because every time I walk out, the damn thing squirts me, you know, and gets me all wet. So uh, that's the type of relationship I've had with her. 
All right, Randy. Well, I really appreciate Thank you, sir, you so much. I really appreciate you. I wish you the best and have a great evening. Great. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.